Welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where we're building up the Bride of Christ one tricky Bible study at a time. Yes, I did say tricky Bible study um, because that's what's ahead of us today. We're back in John chapter 1, and we're going to have to sort through through some questions of manuscript evidence and translation. I know it's a bit of a heady stuff, uh, but the problem is that um, when, when translators, when people translate the Bible from what it was originally written in, which was Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, what they're doing is they are bringing in uh, a lot of times they're outside context. And so uh, Lisa and I watched a movie not too long ago called uh, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant. And uh, in it, the, the interpreter, um, at one point, he's, he's basically told, hey, just be quiet and do your job. You're just getting paid to translate. And he says, no, I'm not getting paid to translate. I'm getting paid to interpret. And his meaning is that when people are saying things, there's a lot of other stuff going around. And to somebody who's native in a culture, they're aware of those other things. They might pick up on cues and on things, and they, they will get more meaning out of a certain set of words than just those words themselves. And so the interpreter says, no, you're really, what you want me to do is you want me to interpret. You want me to tell you everything that's going on. And in that case, it ends up saving their life. So it's a good thing the guy listened, right? And so uh, you have this idea then that interpretation or that translation has this need for us to bring often to bring other ideas in to make things clear. And of course, the danger with that, the difficulty of that, is that if you're doing this work and you read the wrong things outside of the text into the text, you can come up with a translation that is misleading, that it's deceptive. You can actually get more in your translation than really ought to be there. And today there is two items in the text that we're looking at today where I think realistically uh, many modern translations sort of miss it and uh, they make some decisions that I don't agree with. And so today when we read the text in John chapter 1, I'm actually going to read from the New King James Version. Uh, of the of the text. Normally I do the English Standard Version, and normally I uh, steer away from the King James Version, but I think there's something to be seen here. Okay, so uh, we're going to read that really quickly, but before we do, I just wanted to review uh, from last week um, that last or the last time we were in John 1, we saw that the Word has become flesh, that John introduces this idea of the logos, it's a Greek word for it, that the logos was toward God, and that everything God was, the logos was. And then in verse 14, we started to look at this last time, we're told that the logos became flesh. And I made a big deal because in John 1, John uses two different words, one for being, one that says it was, and one for becoming, the word that is uh Agenita became, okay? And what happens is in first John in John 1:14, we're told that the logos that was is now become something. There is something new coming into existence. Okay, and so well, there's two really reasons that this is super important. One is that it's important for us to know that the word didn't just appear to be flesh. Uh, Jesus did not just appear to be human. He was human. He suffered as a human. He lived as a human. He was subject to all our human limitations. He was indeed human. And John wants us to know that the word that was 
existing in the beginning with the Father, towards the Father, that this word now has become flesh. There is a new thing happening. Okay, and so it is. It's legit. It's real. And in fact, I whenever I serve communion, often I will draw a, a point from this. Jesus breaks the bread and he says, "This is my body, broken for you." He's not just going to pretend to suffer. He's actually going to suffer and die a human death, right? So the Word now has become flesh, and it's important, I think, for us to also note. I didn't talk about this last time, but that John, from this point on, John is not going to refer to the Logos again. He is not going to use that Greek word for word in this gospel. So, John is done talking about the Logos. Now he's talking about Jesus Christ, right? That which has become flesh. And there's two ways you can interpret that. Some people will actually say, well, this word logos doesn't show up anymore. And they think it's because John wrote his gospel starting in verse 19. And later on, somebody else came, or maybe John himself came and wrote a prologue to it, 18 verses to start this chapter, to, to start this book out and sort of give us a theological content for it. And so they say that whoever wrote that prologue came up with this concept of logos and tacked it on the front. Uh, but I tend to think that it's probably the opposite, that that John very intentionally, when he's talking about the Logos, he's talking about that which was before, and when he talks about the Logos becoming flesh, now he's turning towards that which is. And I think one of the reasons that we can say this is because John points out that the Logos, the word become flesh, now that it has become flesh, it tented or it tabernacled among us. And we talked about this last time, and I'll refer to it a little bit later, I think, um, that the word here is, it literally refers to like dwelling in a tent, uh, just as in the Old Testament, God the Father had the Israelites build a tabernacle that they put in the middle of the of the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt, and then God put his presence, his glory there, and he met with Moses in that tabernacle, okay? And so now something that was in Moses' day now has become in some way the fuller and truer. Because, of course, Moses didn't go and look Jesus in the or God in the eyes and talk to him. Uh, but now, it, in Christ, like, the, the people of God could literally look Jesus in the eye and talk to him. Okay? So, we're going to talk then about uh, this Logos that has now become flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay? And so, John goes on, and I'm going to read the text here then in the uh, New King James Version. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about this, right? And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only, and we're going to scratch out this word begotten in just a minute, but the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is, pre is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now we're going <laughs> to have to 
chop this up quite a bit to get to the reason that I read the New King James Version instead of the ESV, which I usually use. Uh, and one of the first examples of that is uh, in this idea of the one and only, which unfortunately the, the New King James Version says the only begotten. But I want you to notice here, uh, over here in the middle, that um, the only begotten is how the New King James Version translates this. And the English Standard Version says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And now what I want you to notice here is that the English Standard Version says the Son, and the New King James Version says the only begotten, and it doesn't use the word son. And the reason for that is in the Greek, the word son is not written. It does not exist. So you'll see uh, in, in the English Standard Version, the footnote here for the only son says, or the only one, or the unique one. And what's going on here is that in the Greek, a word has been used which refers to a one-of-a-kind, unique individual or thing. Okay? And that's what he says, the one-of-a-kind thing or the one-of-a-kind person from the Father. Now, the translators of the English Standard Version and a few other modern translations, in an attempt to make things more clear, have inserted the word son here as implied by the text, but it's not actually written in the text. So they're thinking as they translate this, I'm reading between the lines, and he's referring to an only son. Now, the, the reason that they might do this is because when this word is used in the Bible, it refers to a one-of-a-kind, and it's often, it's very often used to refer to a one-of-a-kind son. Okay, there is one instance in which it's used to refer to a daughter, a one-of-a-kind daughter, an only daughter, uh, but primarily it's referred to use to refer to a one and only son. And so they put that word son in there to help you help it feel a little bit more clear. But the problem is, is that it's not in the original text. Uh, and when John, in John 3.16, talks about the one and only Son, he's actually going to put the word Son in there. He's not just going to say the one and only. He's going to say God gave his one and only Son. And so what the translators have done is they've taken their idea, their outside idea, and they've put it into the text. And I don't really agree with doing that. I don't think that's a good idea unless absolutely necessary, which is why I didn't read that one first, because I don't want you thinking that it says one and only son. Instead, I read the New King James Version, which just says, <coughs> excuse me, the only begotten. Now, that raises another question, which is where does this idea of begottenness come from? And unfortunately, the answer to that question lies in the Latin Vulgate. So, when Jerome was translating the Latin Vulgate, he took this Greek word that usually refers to a one son, and it is the Greek word is very, very close to the Greek word that refers to an only begotten son. But it's not the same word. And so when Jerome translated the Vulgate, he translated only begotten, uh, sort of inserting his idea of, of begottenness into there. And when he did that, then the tradition began of taking this Greek word as meaning only begotten. But it doesn't mean that. 
And I can we can explain that for sure that's true, because in Hebrews, when Isaac is described, he's described as Abraham's only son using this term. Now, we know that Abraham begat, he fathered more than one son, right? He begat Ishmael. He had Ishmael first, and then he had Isaac afterwards. And so, Isaac is the... Uh, the monogamous son, he's the one-of-a-kind son, not because Isaac was the only son that Abraham ever fathered, but because Isaac is unique in his place and in his character. He's the only son of Sarah. He's the only legit son, if you will. Okay, and so the idea of begottenness is not in this term, but unfortunately, the Vulgate did it, and then later when the King James translated it, they used that, and of course, the New King James follows after the King James. Uh, but the better way to do it is, as the ESV did, to use it as the only. I think, uh, if we find it here, the NIV, back in 1984, the NIV said, the glory of the one and only. This is probably the best way to put it. And so you say, well, Andy, why didn't you just read the NIV instead of the New King James Version? Well, because the NIV makes a worse mistake later on in verse 18, I think, that they shouldn't do. Uh, but the NIV captures it correctly here, I think, in 1984. And here's the unique thing, is when they updated the NIV in 2011, what did they do? They put the glory of the one and only Son. And there they go. They smashed that idea right in there. Like, they don't need to. It was clear enough to say that he was the one and only who came from the Father. But, uh, nonetheless, they put that idea in there, which I think is uh, probably shouldn't be done. Now, of course, who am I to tell the professional translators what they should do? Um, I'm sure they had their good reasons. <laughs> but when I look at this and when I do my study and when I look at the fact that all of all the English translations that are made, they don't agree with this. Some of them will say the one and only. Others will say one and only son. Some of them say begotten. Obviously, there's no consensus. It's a difficult question. And I think the best way to do it is uh, in this case, to translate the one and only, because that's what that term means. He is one and only. Now, that term is going to come up in verse 18, and it's going to cause some more questions there. So, just to review sort of where we've been, this word refers to one of a kind. It is unique. If you have a King James or a New King James Version and you're reading and you see that term begotten, you should understand that that begotten idea is derived from the Latin Vulgate and is not the original Greek. It's not the best way to translate this. It should not be translated that way. Um, and unfortunately, I think... Uh, the church historically has a, had a lot of discussion over what it means that the Son was begotten of the Father, and really, they, they shouldn't even really been having that debate to start with. So, uh, he is the one and only uh, from the Father, okay? We talked about how the King James, in some way, is more accurate because it doesn't paste in the word Son, like the ESV does, uh, and in the NASB, if you have the NASB, you'll notice that the most recent revision of the NASB puts the word son in there, but when they do that, they put it in italics, 
And again, as I've pointed out before, if you read the NASB, you should understand that words in italics are not there for emphasis. It's there to indicate that that word isn't in the original text. It's just sort of implied. And so the translators stuck that word in for the sake of clarity. So that's how the NASB did it. Okay? So, uh, I want you to just remember that the word then became flesh, and he made his dwelling of his the one in uh, his dwelling among us, and then we saw his glory, which is glory unique to the word. It is the glory of the one and only. He is one of a kind. So it's not like multiple words came into existence or came into the flesh, but there is one unique something. We'll just leave it at something for now from the Father full of grace and truth, okay? Now, uh, we're going to talk about this idea of being full of grace and truth because I think it's right, it's quite interesting, and it's quite significant, okay? And I think it's significant because I, I believe this is another reference to Moses. And uh, we've been talking about Moses in verse 1 when we talked about how Moses, how Moses was the one toward God in Exodus 18.19, the one prostantheon in Greek. And then uh, John says that Jesus was prostantheon from the very beginning. Okay, and so there's this echo of what Moses was, Jesus was. Uh, and then uh, we didn't talk about this, but I was noticing it today as I was doing a little bit more reading. Um, that in verse 11, we're told that, that the word came to his own people who didn't receive him. And you say, well, that sounds kind of familiar to me. If you, if you remember Exodus 2, what happened in Exodus 2 is that you had, you had Moses. And, where, and, and here's another parallel. Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's household, right? And, and the Egyptians typically regarded the Pharaoh as a god. So Moses, in, in Egyptian terms, would have been seen somewhat like the son of a god who grew up in a god's house. But he was an Israelite. And in Exodus 2, we have this account where the, the Israelites were being mistreated by, by a, an Egyptian, and Moses intervenes to save the Israelite, to save this Hebrew person, and he kills the Egyptian, and he's thinking like, hey, you know, they're going to they're gonna be so thankful. And what happens, though, is that the Israelites sort of turn on him, and, uh, and, and, and he gets afraid, and they, the, the thing becomes known to Pharaoh, and he gets, he's basically, Pharaoh's going to try to catch him and put him to death. And so, instead of receiving the the Moses, Moses who came to save them, they, the Israelites reject him. And what, what does John tell us about Jesus? He came to his own people, just like Moses came to his own people, and they didn't receive him. And then you think, okay, so Moses goes away, and Moses comes back, and at first, the Israelites, when Moses says, God has sent me to save you, at first they respond positively. But then, once Moses goes to work, and Pharaoh starts cracking down on the Hebrew people as a result, then the people turn on Moses, and they reject him. And you see a parallel to that of, of Jesus, of course. When Jesus comes and starts healing people and delivering people, the immediate response is like, wonderful. But then... Uh, the, the Pharisees are worried that the Romans are going to crack down on them. And so, out of fear, they, they turn on Jesus and they end up having him put to death, right? And so, there's these, these sort of echoes, right? These parallels between Moses and Jesus. And so, we're told um, 
that uh, the word came and dwelt among us, and he was full of grace and truth. Oh, sorry, I just got sidetracked into, into verse 11, where he came to his own people who didn't receive him. And then here we're told that he came, that he was full of grace and truth. Now, uh, this again is an echo, I think, back to Moses. So it, Moses uh, used to meet with God in the tabernacle, right? In order to lead Egypt, he needed direction straight from God. And so we're told that he that God spoke to Moses face to face. But what we know is that Moses never actually saw God face to face, but that this was a description of God's very direct interaction uh, with Moses. Because Moses asked to see the Lord. And, and what Yahweh tells him is in Exodus 34, uh, Moses uh, asked to see the Lord, and the Lord says no. The, the Lord hides him. And then, and then we're told in Exodus 34 that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, and again, those all caps means he's saying his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you say, okay, well, that's nice, but that's because you're reading an English translation of a Hebrew text, right? But what we talked about before is that the people in John's day, the Hebrews, they probably mostly were familiar with the Greek Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. And if you pull this text up in the Greek Septuagint, what you find is that it, it basically says that the Lord is full of mercy and truth. So the Hebrew word translated faithfulness is actually the word for truth, and uh, steadfast love is hesed. It is, um, it is God's loyal, steadfast love. And the, the Septuagint translates that he is full of this. He is full of mercy and truth. So when John talks about the word, he says, here's the glory of the word uh, the one unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think what he's referring back to is that the, that Yahweh, who, who described himself as being full of mercy and of, and of truth, and we were told in John 1, 1 right, that all that, the, all that God was, the Word was. And now we're told that the Word comes and, and shows his glory to us. And what is that revelation of his glory? Well, it's full of grace and truth. And so I think that John is making another reference back to this is God revealing himself through Christ. Okay, we're going to skip over uh, verse 15 here, where John bears witness about the word and cries out, this is he of whom I said he who comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Because that is like a whole episode on itself, and we are going to see that one in its context in John 1.30. So later on, John is going to, to tell the story of when John said this, and we're going to deal with that quotation then. Uh, what I think uh, John is doing is, again, he's reiterating that the Word came first, that the Word is pre-existing. He was before him. And then John tells us that for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Okay? And then notice this, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through 
Jesus Christ. So we have this repeated idea. We have grace upon grace from, from, uh, from Jesus. We have the, the glory of the Word being the one and only from the Father. It's full of grace and truth. And then he told, tells us grace and truth came through Jesus. And right now in verse 17, John is painting a contrast between, yeah, of course, Moses and Jesus. And so what came first? The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right? So when, when God gave Moses the law, he was revealing something about himself and his character and how he expected Israel to leave, live. But we know that Israel never got it right. They, they knew what was right, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't live it out. They couldn't put it into practice. And so Moses revealed God, but he didn't get us to him. And now John is telling us, look, the law came through Moses, which all of the Jews would have loved and appreciated. They believed that it was an act of God's love and, and truth and grace to them. But he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in fact, he uses the Greek word, which we're familiar with now, not the word for being, but the word for becoming. He says, grace and truth became through Jesus. And I think that this is the fundamental truth that John is driving at here. When he is saying that the word which was and was with God, that the word became flesh and that grace, this, this undeserved love of God and truth, they became in their, in their fullness in Jesus Christ, right? So it was only through Jesus Christ that we finally received the fullness of God's grace and mercy to us. That which was distant and unattainable in some regards or incomplete has now come to its fullness and to its, its uh, full manifestation through Jesus Christ. John wants us to know as highly, he wants his readers to know as highly as they regarded Moses as the one who represented God and who brought God's truth to them. He's saying there is someone, there is, the, there is someone who was prior to Moses, uh, and we'll see this later in John, right? The exact time that Jesus said this, but prior to Moses, there was someone else that was prostanth Theon, who was towards God and was with God and perfectly represented God, and that, that, that someone, that word, became human and lived with us, and we got to see him and touch him, and so it's like truth and grace, they, they became tangible reality. And, and that idea of tangible reality then spills out into verse 18. No one has ever seen God the only God, or as the um, King James puts it, I want to read this, uh, the only begotten Son uh, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The only God who is at the Father's side, the ESV says, he has made him known. And what's, what's happening here is that John is now making this further explanation that when the law was there, the law didn't enable the Jews to fully know the Father, but through Jesus, the grace and truth that define the Father were brought into being, and we finally got to see him.
Now the question then becomes, which I've been sort of sidling up to and I haven't quite got to it yet, is this question of verse 18. How do we translate verse 18? And, and the reason is this. Uh, there are some manuscripts, we have many manuscripts of John chapter 1, and there are many of them that here in verse 18 they say, the one-of-a-kind God, and then there are many manuscripts that say the one-of-a-kind Son. And so the question is, should we translate here which one was the original, which one came first? And, uh, and people disagree on how to do that. So the King James Version says uh, the only begotten Son, and the New King James with it. The ESV says the only God. Uh, the NIV says the one and only Son, and then they say who is himself God. So they, they try to cheat and use both of them, <laughs> which isn't, isn't uh, sustainable. Um, the the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, says the one and only Son, and then they say who is himself God. So they try to stick them both in there. The New English translation says the only one, himself God. So they translate it that way, and so on and so forth. Okay? And so the question is, uh, which of these is right? And to answer that question, we come back again, I think, to where we started, which is that when you interpret something, often you read between the lines and you bring your own stuff in with you. And so we got to kind of tread carefully here. Okay? When we look at this evidence, we have some manuscripts that uh, talk about it, that, that have this written as it being the, the one and only God. Uh, and we have a bunch of other manuscripts that would have it say the one and only Son. Now, some of the oldest ones we have uh, say God, but they seem to be restricted more to one family, one grouping of manuscripts that are related to each other. The other difficulty is that uh, the word God is not written out full hand. It's two letters. It's an abbreviation for the word God that was fairly common back then rather than writing out God's whole name, because it was a sacred name, you would abbreviate it. And the abbreviation for God and the abbreviation for Son are very, very, very close together. And if they'd just written out the whole word, maybe we wouldn't have as much confusion. So we've got it complicated by the fact that you've got people abbreviating the significant word, and that the manuscript evidence is split. Now, when translators run into a problem like this, there's some theories that they have about which one is more likely to be reliable. And one of those theories says that you should prefer the more difficult reading. Uh, in other words, they say you should take, you should assume the manuscript that makes less sense is the right one. And you, you hear that and you go, well, that's dumb. Why wouldn't you take the manuscript that makes more sense? And the reasoning is they assume that if there was a scribe making a copy and he came upon something that seemed confusing or wrong, but and he thought he knew what it meant, that he might fix it, you know, himself and put the right word in, and then it would make more sense. And so their thinking is uh, it's it would make more sense to take a hard-to-understand text and fix it into something that wasn't original, but that seemed to make more sense. Uh, but of course, the other problem is that um, if there was some other mechanism in going on there, then that strategy, that theory, would cause you to make 
to intention to sort of like on purpose make your Bible make less sense. <laughs> so uh, we know in John three sixteen that that John uses this exact phrase. He says the one and only Son, and he uses the word Son, and it clearly isn't the only one and only God there. And so John talks about Jesus as the one of a kind Son in John three sixteen, and there's no question there. And so I tend to look at this and I would say, well, maybe John was just actually consistent. And he called him the one and only son here in chapter one. And he called him the one and only son later in chapter three. And uh, he called himself, of course, just the one and only in verse 14. And so uh, some people will look at this and say, well, let's just, let's just assume that John isn't calling Jesus by a bunch of very similar and contradictory things. Let's just assume he's consistent. And if it clearly means son in John 3.16, then maybe we should assume that it said son here. There's another factor going on here, which is that uh, cultures have sort of figures of speech that they use. And, and one Semitic or, or uh, Hebrew-Israelite uh, idiom uh, uses this phrase of being in the bosom of someone as, as like being in the closest possible relationship with them. And that's that's the phrase that's used here. It says the one and only uh, son or God, depending on what you decide there, is in the bosom of the Father. And so he's saying it's the closest possible relationship. And if you're talking about a relationship and one being in the bosom of the other, and the one term is father, then you would expect that the matching term would be the son is in the bosom of the father. It seems really odd to say that God is in the bosom of the father. It just doesn't seem to fit that idiom. But furthermore, and I think this is probably the bigger one, is the implications of this idea of it of saying son versus God. Uh, and, and, and here's what I mean by that. So let's imagine that you want to translate this uh, as son. Then you would then then here's what John 1:18 would say. It would say, "No one has ever seen God." Check. No question about that. It's easy for us to establish. Exodus tells us that you can't see God without dying. So to say, "No one has ever seen God," that that makes perfect sense. And then you would read the the one unique Son, who is at the Father's side. He has. Uh, he has explained the God God to us, right? So what you're saying is nobody actually saw God except for the Son who is with God has explained him to us. And that makes absolute perfect logical sense, right? And, and you might even you might even look at this about and say, well, and look, uh, the word in the beginning, the word wasn't flesh. So in John 1, 1, when the Word is with God and what God is, the Word is, uh, then you don't have this problem with a human being seeing God because the Word is not flesh at that time. And then in verse 14, when we're told the Word became flesh, and later on in John 14, when John says, or when Jesus says to his followers, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not saying you actually like looked at God with your eyes. He's saying everything about me is a direct revelation of who God is. As Hebrews 1 says, he is the exact representation of his being, right? He's the image of the invisible God. You can't see God, but you could see Jesus, and Jesus uh, perfectly reflects Christ. Okay, so all of that fits together quite nicely. Uh, but if you translate this that he's the one and only God, then 
then that has some implications. Well, on the first hand, you might say, well, it's handy to do that, because if you do that, then you can use this verse uh, to support your belief in the Trinity, that Jesus is fully God, because then it would just flat out say that Jesus is the one and only God. And it seems rather convenient if you're if you're defending the Trinity to do that, but I don't think that's actually a good idea. Um, I, I, and I think it causes really big problems, because then, then what the verse says is this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only God uh, has made him, uh, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And what, and what that means is, is you're saying no one has ever seen God, but wait, on the other hand, the one and only God, which a lot of you guys have seen, his name is Jesus, and we just told you that we saw him, um, uh, he has made the Father known. And and so John seems to be contradicting himself. He says, no one has ever seen God. But then in the very next phrase, he says, the only God has made the Father known. And this, there's a further problem, right? Remember, the, the term we talked about, uh, monogamous, is that it refers to a unique, one-of-a-kind thing, that there is nothing else in that same category. And so if you say that the one the the one of a kind God at the Father's side has made him known, what you're doing is you're essentially saying that Jesus is the one of a kind God, and that means that the Father is not God. Because there's only one God. There's only one one unique God. And so I don't think you can translate this to say the one and only God who's at the Father's side. Uh, at face value, it seems to be like this really strong Trinitarian statement, but the problem is, is that, in essence, if you follow that thread, I think it denies that the Father is God, which nobody, of course, is going to do. And that's the whole point, is that the Father, who's repeatedly referred to as God, uh, has not been seen by anyone, but that the Logos, the Word become flesh, who did know him, who is in this perfectly close relationship with him, that the Logos, that Jesus Christ made him known. And so theologically speaking, I don't, I don't see how you can translate this to say that Jesus is the one and only God, which is how you have to translate that if you think that the manuscript said it was God. Now again, some of the translators, the NIV, the CSB, they try to get around this by saying the one and only who is himself God, and they're, again, they're, they're taking ideas and they're smashing them in there and they're playing with this to try to get it to fit their theology, but that's not supported by the text. And we basically have a choice. You can either say that this says, the one and only Son who's at the Father's side has revealed the Father because we couldn't see God, and so Jesus did it. He showed us God. Or you end up saying, essentially, that Jesus is God and the Father really isn't. Um, and I, I just, that to me makes uh, no sense. And so I think you end up with a train wreck here if you try to use this to prove that Jesus is God. I don't think you can do that without denying that the Father is God. And of course, nobody, you know, to, to deny that the Father is God is to deny, like, your whole Bible. So, uh, and furthermore, of course, you have this opening statement in, in verse 18, which, which just flat out tells us no one has ever seen God. And so that's part of my, you know, my, this, when we talked about last time, the, the word became flesh and we talked about God, Jesus emptying himself. He was in the form of God, but he became human. He became flesh. He, he, and I, I sort of implied that 
or said that that I I think that Jesus took his divine attributes and he he got rid of them like he became fully human on this earth and and lived as a as a perfect human being perfectly obedient to the father um I think that very much fits with this idea of no one has ever seen God because if you're if you want to say as as very common, widespread formulations of Jesus is that he was fully God while living on the earth, that he never gave up any of his divine attributes, that he was fully God, absolutely, and nothing of that was gone, then it seems to me that you have to deny this statement in John 1.18, which says, no one has ever seen God. Because you'd have to put a big, big asterisk there and say, no one has ever seen the Father, but they have seen God the Son. And, uh, and, I don't, and that's not what John says. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the, the one and only Son, the Son of God, who is at the, at the Father's side, literally, who is in the bosom of the Father, and that's, uh, he has made God known to us. So the way we see God is through the Son. So we're going to leave it right there. You can work out some implications of this, some implications of, well, what does it mean? If Jesus has fully revealed the Father to us, then what is the best way to do theology? Should we think of hypotheticals in terms of Greek philosophical terms, or should we even parse out all of the little things that we see happening in the Old Testament, or should we just say, uh, if you want to know who God the Father is, just look at Jesus Christ, his Son. And I think that's the best, the best avenue uh, to knowing God. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to work through John with you in this account of, of Jesus' closest disciple uh, in him saying, if you've seen me, then you know the Father because you have seen the Father. And that's what we're going to do as we continue to study John. So looking forward to doing this, and I will catch you again here very soon on the Apostles Mailbox. God bless. Mm -hmm.